your swagger is not something external to you. It is it's something that you already have. And it will manifest differently in every different human being. There is not one prescribed way to have swagger, to show up with swagger. You can be quiet. You can be an introvert. You can be introspective. You can be loud. You can be showy. You can be something in between. You could be anything. And your swagger will be unique to you. And nobody gets to judge that. That is off the table because it is who you are and you deserve to be seen in all of your glory. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to Leslie M. Now, I wasn't a big fan of the fashion police show back when Leslie lived in the UK. So those references that she makes in the discussion of her former life before what she does today back in Toronto <laughs> were, were lost on me. But Leslie left Canada in, when she was 19 and headed over to the UK to follow her dreams to be a singer in a punk band in the UK and then found herself on TV airing several times a day and got overwhelmed, I guess, by the mini celebrity status that she'd ended up with. Headed back to Canada, ended up in the advertising business, ended up wanting to train her people but couldn't find any training companies that didn't suck so started a training company. And then from there, she drew an essence, which is that there's something that holds everybody back. And so now she does coaching and the essence of that as a book, her new book, which comes out on the 10th of May called Swagger. And so today I'm chatting to Leslie about swagger and what is swagger and how do you develop swagger and what are some of the things that hold us back? And now I might just be showing some confirmation bias here, but we talk about swearing and why swearing is important. Why people who swear are smarter and happier. It works for me. We talk about what else businesses can do, what leaders can do to, to lead with swagger, how businesses can build psychological safety. And she's got some cracking book recommendations as well. A fantastic conversation with Leslie. She's a real firecracker there's like energy in the room when she's uh talking to me i really enjoyed it it was great fun i'm sure you'll enjoy it too hi i'm leslie m i'm a speaker a swagger coach and the author of swagger unleash everything you are and become everything you want and i'm coming to you today from toronto canada 
you haven't always lived in Canada, though. Where where else have you had? Where's your nomadic life taken you from and to and back again? Well, I actually spent 17 years living in the UK from the age of 19 to the age of 36. I was a Brit and I still am in my heart and soul. Just know that. <laughs> where, where, had you, where had you grown up up to the age of 19? I grew up in Montreal in Canada. Uh-huh. And then I left Montreal to pursue my dreams of being a singer. It was back in the day. It was all about the new wave punk scene. And I was in a band in Montreal. I started my first band when I was 16. And my dream was to be a big new wave, you know, a new wave sensation. Uh, And the only place to do that, as you know, is the legit home of the new wave punk scene, which is what I lived for, was the UK. So I packed my bags and moved to London. 19. That's a big, big thing to do. Yeah, well, that's how I roll. (laughs) (laughs) And so what took you back to Toronto? It's funny because I lived, I had an amazing life in in the UK. Um, I had several careers. I I worked uh, as a singer for many, many years. I also worked in the film industry because my music partner was in the film industry. So we spent so much time together. He would give me scripts and say, can you read these? Tell me what you think, which led me to be a script editor and a script doctor and a script analyst for a whole variety of, of companies in the UK. And then I fell in love with story and structure so much. And because I had a foundation as a writer, I started writing TV proposals and movie proposals, and I would go and pitch them to production companies. And on this one occasion, I went in to pitch a TV concept to a big uh, UK-based production company called Planet 24 that you might be familiar with. Uh And when I do anything in this life, I go large. I'm I'm a larger-than-life human, so I go big. And I'm pitching my show, and I'm doing the whole dog and pony and all the rest of it. And the guy who owned the production company said to me, you know, you should be on camera. And I said, of course I should be on camera. Clearly you're a genius. And they gave me a talk show. Which oh, was insane. brilliant. It was insane. So that, which I didn't, I didn't love the talk show because they wanted me to be Jerry Springer and I wanted to be White Oprah. So it didn't work out very well for us. But it did lead me on a path of working on television for a bunch of years. But here's the thing about working in TV in the UK. It is not the fancy schmancy, sexy, wexy thing that it is in North America. (laughs) It's a hard job with not a lot of perks. And uh, if you're on TV in the UK, I mean, back in the day, there were only four TV channels. So if you're on TV, you're famous, whether you like it or not. And at one point, I had two different shows airing at the same time. And one of them was on three times a week and then repeated late night. So I got a lot of exposure. And in the UK... People don't have the best sense of boundaries when it, <laughs> when it comes to, you know, people who are on, you know, on TV. I wouldn't call myself a celebrity because I don't, I don't know if I was, but I... You're in their living room three times a week. They know you. They know you. And the, they want to hear the final moment where I went, I'm out. Want to hear the final moment? This is the story. So I'm out at my favorite bar club back in the day and I'm in the women's loo and I discover that there's no... Toilet paper. Now, remember that as a North American TV personality in the UK, your voice becomes quite distinctive. People know you partially because of your voice. And so I do what all women do when they're in that situation is you call out, hey, excuse me, does anyone have any loo roll? Could could anyone hand me some loo roll? And I hear this. Oh, my God, it's the fashion police lady. Oh, my God, fashion police lady. And this woman 
lies herself down and inserts <laughs> her head <laughs> underneath the door of the, the, the stall. So her head is literally between my legs. And I went, oh, that's it. I, I have had enough because you can't, you can't un, make yourself unrecognizable or unfamous yourself. It's not, it's not possible. And so I just thought, I, this is not the life that I wanted. I, I wanted, I'd realized at that point that I wanted to be on camera or be on stage because I, I wanted a platform from which to communicate. That's what was important to me. I had a lot of really passionate thoughts and ideas that I wanted to share with people and I thought that, you know, being Oprah was going to be the way to do it. Okay. Yeah, no, wrong. That was not, that was not the way to do it. So I packed it all up. I sold my house and I moved back to Canada, but I moved to Toronto. Very good. <laughs> it's my long so, story. <laughs> it, 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 um, and so what, what was your career when you got back? What did you do then when you got back to Toronto? I love this, the whole people do a thing and then they change. Oh yeah. Like reinvent themselves. What did you reinvent yourself as? Many, many times I have done this. Well, when I got back to Canada, I realized I actually had no saleable skills. I had transferable skills, but nothing on paper because I didn't want to go back into the film industry. I didn't want to be in the TV industry. So I kind of had nothing. I had to start from scratch. So I took a look at what was I good at? What did I know? What did I understand? I knew media. I knew multimedia. I knew how to work a room like a badass. Like I could, you know, I could sell anything to anybody. And I, I knew how to tell stories and, and all of that good stuff. So I thought, where will that fly? Advertising. So I targeted the biggest ad agency in Canada and I relentlessly called the creative director over and over and over and over until he finally answered the phone. And I said, he picked up the phone and I, you know, and I said, is this, is this Carlos Caravito? Yeah. I said, my name is Leslie M. You want me. He said, <laughs> excuse me. I, excuse me. What? I said, you want me. Really, you, trust me, you want me. And then I told him all the reasons that he should want me. And he was like, okay, you have my you have my attention. Come in and talk to me. And I went in to meet with him. And we ended up talking for about two hours. We didn't talk about advertising at all. We talked about life and, new, you know, Nouvelle Vague, French cinema. We talked about living in Europe. We talked about, you know, being on stage. We talked about, you know, screenplay, all that kind of stuff. He trotted me down the hall to, to meet the president and the head of strategy, and they gave me a job the next day as an intermediate copywriter. I had no, I had no portfolio or no anything, but the cool thing about this story is that a year later, I was creative director. You got his job a year later? Not, well, yeah, because he transitioned out. Someone else came in, and then that person got pushed out, and I was recommended for the job. So oh. that is the power of the transferable skills and being a big grown up. Because I took a job that was way sort of, no, I wouldn't say below my pay grade because that's, that's arrogant. I don't mean that. But the, my peers were in their early 20s and I was 36 or uh, 37 at the time. And I was like, yes, I'll take it. I didn't, I, I all humility, I was like, I'll take it. And then all of my adult skills came into play and I was able to move from there. But that wasn't the only reinvention that I did it goes on from there. What, what was, how long were you creative director at Canada's largest ad agency? I was there for about four years and I loved the fun of advertising. 
I didn't like what it did to me. It's an incredibly stressful environment. It's an incredible, de- incredibly demanding environment. And it's one where you're only as good as the very last thing that you did. And I found that, you know, being a leader of this team of all of these creative, they were so, so just infected with insecurity. They had such need for external validation. Of course they did. They were so stressed. They were terrified that the last idea they had was going to be the only idea they would ever produce again. And I watched them. They were in torment and I couldn't help them. I was too tapped out doing the work and I tried to find training for them. And it was a fiasco. There was people did not understand our business. Advertising people are super sharp. They're smart. They're cynical. And you got to be some kind of something to be able to penetrate their, their thick heads and their big brains. So I, I went home to my husband one day and I said, you know what? I feel like I'm using my superpowers for evil instead of good. <laughs> and you're persuading, I think, you're persuading people to buy shit they don't need. Yeah, it's not good yeah. For I them. mean, there there is nobility in ever. I don't want to disadvertise it because there is nobility in it, you know. And I think it's an amazing industry and it's it's a lot of fun. But I, I did feel like I was misusing my superpowers. Um, so I said to him, "So I think I'm going to quit my job and start a training company." And he said, "You you what?" But Leslie, you hate training and you're untrainable. I said, right? Who better than someone like me to start a training company? Because if I can, if I can create experiences for someone like me, then I might be onto something here. He said, oh girl, you just got to make money. I was like, I got this. I'm on it. I got it. Anyway, that was 14 years ago now. My uh, the training company that I that I started, it, you know, eventually became what is now today Combustion. Traveled the world many times over, delivering um, training to countless organizations, Fortune 10 organizations. We developed and delivered Google's Global Marketer Training Program. We've worked with, you know, TD, TD Bank, RBC, Lenovo, PepsiCo, Disney, Uber. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So I really was on to something. Does the target audience of that business, has it become more mainstream or is the target audience smart, cynical, cynical people still? Is it, is, do, you, do you try and capture that sort of strategic positioning? Uh, well, what we position ourselves as is that we're the no BS, irreverent, use the information the very next day, tell it to you for real subject matter expert training company. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. who like, we, we are. We know the shit that you're trying to do. Yeah, we know. We don't, do. I, I never, my, my team, my training team is not made up of trainers. It's made up of subject, subject matter experts who I've taught how to be trainers because they need to be able to problem solve in the moment. They need to have lived it and experienced and felt it and, and have the empathy and the insight and the expertise to be able to share. And we keep it 100% real. So that's kind of what we're known for. And as a result, the experiences that we've, that we've delivered all these years have been considered to be truly transformational. You know, we, we, we do some pretty rad stuff. It's, it's pretty amazing. So you started your, your initial concept isn't, we're going to train some people well enough. It's, we're actually going to, you know, cause you were starting from that premise of nobody i can't find anyone to train my people so i'm going to come up with something so what what sort of transformational because you mentioned the word experience and i've been to lots of training and it was definitely an experience but mostly it wasn't a repeatable one listen we are all about super super experiential workshops and if you know if someone hasn't cried or almost peed in their pants laughing in one of our workshops (laughs) 
I don't consider it to, to be a success. I also, I also understand that training has such a bad rap. And one of our mantras is training doesn't have to suck. Um, everything that, that I've learned about teaching adults things is that they, it has to penetrate their own brains right? They can't, you can't force information into them. So you have to create experiences in which they can either validate the fact that they don't have the right information to make them open to the information you're going to give them or both, or to give them experiences that prove the value of the knowledge you just gave them. So that's where all of my, my creative background comes in is how do I formulate these experiences that are going to give people those unignorable aha moments because once you see it and what you once you know it you can't you can't unsee it and unknow it and the kind of training that we did that we do is so it has such a viral effect that I never for my company combustion never once had to do any marketing my entire business was built by referral or word of mouth the whole business we're that good (laughs) (laughs) was that a, a sort of unintended consequence of what you were doing or was that a deliberate plan well, we knew, I knew what success looked like to me, and that was to change people's minds about what training could do and could be. That's what I wanted to do. And once you do that, the people will do what they do. You know, the fact that, I mean, the, what I, what I, I realized that I was doing very quickly as I was making the, the, the job of the HR professionals and the developed talent and development professionals, I was making their job so freaking easy because once they got us in and we kind of laid the foundation anytime they had a combustion workshop, they had people clamoring to get in. It wasn't those like, eh, we had half the room fill up or people weren't buying into it or whatever. And then those people, those participants would, would change, you know, companies at some point. And then we get a call saying, hey, we were talking about training and so-and-so said that you, the experience they had with you was mind-blowing and it changed their lives. I cannot tell you how many people that I, you know, and I say this with, with, with all humility, zero arrogance, I cannot tell you how many people have told me that I somehow changed their life. That's, that was the driver for everything for me. That's, it was like, I have them for a day or I have them for a series or I have them, whatever. I am going to use all of my personal power and all of my knowledge to change something. There's a direct link there, like singer, storyteller, storyteller, you know, it's all about impact, isn't it? And 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 an emotional impact. Yes. Emotional key. That's the key. And that's the thing that we, that we're very unafraid of is that we bring emotion into it. We don't, we don't shy away from it. We, we bring it in and we pull it out of people because you got to feel it. You got to feel your bad self. That's so important, or you've got to, you've got to recognize that something has shifted, or you've got to have a moment of speaking your truth or communicating incredibly powerfully to someone or taking a big risk and seeing that bad things didn't happen. All of those things will actually attach itself to the piece of knowledge and you'll be able to remember it more easily. Well, that's that whole, um, Daniel Kahneman's theory of, uh, theory of memory is peak lasting. It's like you only lay down memory when there's an emotional attached to it. That's right. That's right. Um, Figure that one out. So, <laughs> and, but that's not what you spend most of your time doing now. Now you do coaching. Next evolution. Well, what happened was when I, you know, in, in all of those encounters that I had with these thousands of people, in and it didn't matter the company, the culture, the country. It didn't matter the level of professional. I recognized that there was this underlying issue 
that just about everybody in the professional world had. And that was that they did not believe that who they were authentically was good enough to bring them the success that they were dreaming of. They did not believe that they could reveal who they really were and still achieve their goals. And once I discovered that, I went, no, 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 wait a second. This is the opposite of everything that I have seen and know to be true. The opposite. And I have got to change people's minds about this. And so is that is that imposter syndrome or is that? Well, in, imposter syndrome is part of it. I think imposter syndrome is a symptom of this human condition. It is this bigger, I mean, I wrote a book about it. It's that big a paradigm. That's, that's kind of the thing is that it's not a simple, it's not a simple question and it's not a simple fix. The question of why do people feel this? There are countless reasons because every, every individual feels it for a different reason, but it, it manifests in the same way. You know, it can be because you were told that you weren't good enough when you were five and you hadn't let it go. It could be told, it could be because you had a really challenging relationship and you got it, your, your psyche and your soul got a beat down. It could be because you've tried things and failed and believed that that failure defines you. It can be because you worked for a crappy boss or a crappy environment and they told you that your work was not up to speed or, or you haven't found your people yet. So you've always felt like an outsider. There are so many reasons that we feel like this. And so what are you doing now to fix that? Well, I wrote a book. Now I can see, now I, you see, now I can see why you wanted to be the white Oprah. Yes, you see, I, right? That, it makes I sense. I can see like that. It's like all of the other stuff is like, if only they would put you on TV and 10, 10 million people watched you every lunchtime. That, that would be, that, that was, that, now I would go back to that dream. I would have that, <laughs> that dream now in a whole different way because I'm, you know, I'm much more, more in control of my destiny than I, than I was back then. But in lieu of cloning myself, which, you know, I considered briefly because I was like, how do I help as many people as possible? Because really that's all I want to do. I'm a big suck and I love human beings so profoundly and I can't bear it when, when, when I see them feeling trapped or limited or in pain. I cannot stand it. I'm such an empath. And I understand that my knowledge and my, my personal power can help them to get to that better place. So I was like, how do I use this in the most effective way possible? But there was a little caveat in my head because I didn't want to write a book that was going to just be this fluffy, wuffy, inspirational, you can do it, girlfriend, go get it. You know, I didn't want to do that because that's, no one has time for that and those things don't work. So my feeling was, unless I could write a book that could, to my standard, somehow replicate the experience of having me in front of you in terms of its tone and approach, and also to be incredibly practical and pragmatic um, in terms of helping you walk through these steps, this methodology for unleashing your swagger in your own unique way. I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it. It took me three years to write the book for that reason. And when it was done, I was like, yes, that is me on a page. And I am really happy with that. So it's, you know, it took a while, but I got there in the end. And already the, the reaction to the book has been exactly what I, what I'd hoped for. It's, it's been overwhelming. It's so exciting. So share some of your, your wisdom, your secret sauce. <laughs> well, let's see. Okay. Well, how about this? How about this? The thing that most people are seeking, 
the thing that keeps them trapped and that they 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 wish for is confidence. Am I right or am I right? Yeah. Everybody wants to manifest this thing called confidence. And what they do to try and get it is the fake it till you make it thing. Right? This advice that people get, it's advice that people take. They are all wrong. Do not take it. Bad advice, wrong, bad. Because here is the problem. When you fake it till you make it, and the thing you're trying to fake is confidence, you by definition limit your ability to gain confidence. Because the only way that you can experience legitimate confidence is through competence. Only by doing something over and over and over again and proving to your very resistant brain that, ah, I got this. Like, you could put me in a whole bunch of situations and I could do this thing. You could move me into a different company and I could do this thing. I actually fundamentally know what I'm talking about. How cool is that? That's what leads to confidence. But when you go into that fake it till you make it thing, you're walking around telling everybody you already know all that. You're all that in a bag of chips. And as a result, you can never ask for help because you would have to admit that you were lying in the first place. So it keeps you trapped and it limits your ability to gain the very competence that is going to lead to confidence. So faking it till you make it sucks so hard. Don't do it. The key is owning where you are in your journey. Because do not kid yourself, every freaking human on the planet started from a place of not knowing something. And everybody had to go through the same process of learning more and practicing more and gaining more expertise and gaining more experience. So who do we think is kidding who? And when it's your first day on the job or your first first month or your first three months and you're walking around saying, I got it, I know it, everybody knows you're full of crap. Because you can't possibly, it's not possible. So the, the, the advice that I give is you find someone who does know the stuff that you want to know or the people and you go and you sit at their feet and you say, hello, very smart and wise and wonderful human. Might you be so gracious as to share your wisdom with me because you clearly know more than I do and I would appreciate it just, you know, and I would pay it forward and I would reciprocate in any way that I could. Because you're stroking people's egos and being humble and kind, most people say, oh, sure, I'm happy to do that. And then if you're super duper smart, you run around telling everybody how these amazing humans helped you to be the better, smarter human that you now are. Because A, you're validating the fact that you have the confidence now and you're celebrating the crap out of them, which means they're going to continue to support you and lift you moving forward. It's it's incredible. Whenever I've reached out to people and said, can you help me? My experience has been the same. Almost universally, people say, yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. Happy to help. Let Mm -hmm. me share. Like, what is this, like a big secret or something that people don't know? But but that, that goes back to the very problem that I was talking about in the first place. The reason that people don't want to do that is because they feel that if they do that, that that is making themselves too vulnerable and that they won't somehow be accepted or respected by the tribe, the collective. They're trapped. Yes, yeah, so, or they say something like, I, "Well, I would, I would call him, but he'll be too busy." And it's like, "Well, he hasn't even said no yet." I mean, I, my my team say, "Well, they're busy. Well, should I call them?" I'm like, "They haven't said no. If you call them, they might say yes." And 
that could be a win as, a, as opposed to now just saying it's definitely a no because we haven't actually got around to ringing them. Be a, be a good and kind human, reach out and always make sure that you offer something in return, whatever it is that you can, even if you're not sure what it is. Say, I'm not sure what I could do to, to pay this back or pay it forward. But if there is something, I am at your service and I would happy be happy to do that. Or, you know what? I'm so grateful for what you shared with me. I'm going to make sure that I pay that knowledge forward and I share that with somebody else and I credit you with, with that knowledge. And people go, oh, yay, thank you. That's lovely. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. I was thinking we might also talk about one of your other chapters in there. Which one? Swearing. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what's funny? Because I know we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. But I used to work for a, a company in Texas, and then I went to work for a company in Vancouver. And somebody said, "What's the difference?" And I said, "It's really easy. Like the people in Canada, it's a bit like being in the UK. They swear, they drink, and they take holiday. And none of those things were necessarily true for my colleagues in, Tex- in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Canada, Canada is a is a, 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 a an even more polite version than the UK. Even more polite <laughs> than the UK. Um, so my feeling about 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 swearing is that um, oh, I have so many so many feelings about. And, swearing. But why? And why is it in the book? It's in the book because it's one of those things that people judge us for. And we then judge ourselves or we limit ourselves based on that judgment. And I don't think anybody should do that. I think it's a great way to teach people about the fact that we cannot live to other people's definition of of their own tolerance. I even hate the word tolerance as, as if something has to be tolerated or their level of acceptance. And swearing is part of the human expression. You know, most people do it when they're not at work, they do it around their friends or with their family or with their buddies or whatever, and that's okay. But all of a sudden they go to work and they now are shrouding their true persona and losing part of the the use of their language is one of the ways that that they do it. So it's inauthentic. Also, um, a lot of people will will either dole out or be on the receiving end of judgment because, you know, ladies don't swear or, you know, that, we don't swear in this culture or that's unacceptable or can you just watch your language or that was offensive to me. All of that crap that people trot up, trot out. And it's a control mechanism. You're, you're not swearing at people. You're swearing around people and hopefully with people. You are utilizing the breadth of the English language. That cannot be in and of itself offensive. It's not that the ears are going to melt off or that the brain is going to malfunction. It's they're they're trying to impose their levels of acceptance onto you. And here's the little secret. There has been a ton of research that's been done around swearing and the benefits of swearing. First of all, swearing is an incredibly powerful coping mechanism. When you are stressed or frustrated, it has been proven to relieve stress and frustration. We all know. You stub your toe on the door, you you know, like, you know, we all use it, okay? It's also been proven that our tolerance for pain increases when we can express swear words. And this this study was done by people, um, they, they had people put their hands in freezing cold water and keep their hands in there for as long as they possibly could. 
Then, and they timed it. And then they had people that they had the same people put their hands, their other hand in freezing cold water. And they were told to swear while, while their hand was in water and they were able to withstand the pain for far longer. It's one of those things <laughs> that has been recognized as an aid to childbirth for that very reason. And um, people who uh, swear freely and comfortably, studies say that they actually are more, not less intelligent than their non-swearing counterparts. Um, communities, and when I say communities, I mean workplaces or environments or or whatever, are considered to be more trustworthy when swearing is a is a, a regular and accepted part of the environment. And there's there's much more. It's all in the book. I did. I just think it's. Bullshit. When people say <laughs> you, if you swear, that defines you as something. It's like, wait, what? Do you want to pick a new word? How about if using the word green? What if I don't like the word green? I find that offensive because I had a bad experience with a frog way back when. So, should you now not say the word green because I consider it to be offensive for my own reasons? No, absolutely not. So it's just one of those factors because I think it's a swagger limiter. Aha. Uh-huh. So what's your definition of swagger? Your books, what's the book Swagger? What's the subtitle? Well, uh, Swagger, Unleash Everything You Are and Become Everything You Want. Now, I want to, it's good that you asked me because I'm not talking about the old kind of swagger, that show off in your face, arrogant, fronty, peacocky, strutty kind of swagger. That is not my kind of bad swagger. the way that I have redefined swagger is the ability to manifest who you really are and hold on to it in the face of all of that psychological crap that's going to try and come for it regardless of the situation or environment so it means you have one face you have one truth and you show up with it the same no matter where you are no matter who you're with and no matter what the environment throws at you you're the same with your buddies as you are at work. You're the same with you with you know with your spouse as you are with your work colleagues. You're the same on stage as you are in your living room. That's swagger. Is this harder for women than men? I hear or I read all the time reports that say you know because people perceive competence through a confidence filter, and you know if a if a man sixty percent thinks he knows it sixty percent they'll claim 100% whereas if a woman doesn't they'll they'll go the other way so is 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 it is there a gender gap swagger gap i think it gets both genders in different ways because men tend to manifest bad swagger and they think that they're that they're fooling people. I mean, I don't. I'm not speaking for all men, but I think men have a tendency to shroud their vulnerability and shroud their authentic selves and 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 put on a persona um, of who they they want themselves to be or who they imagine is going to be the most acceptable version of themselves. So I think that they get caught up in the bad swagger paradigm. And for women, women really want to manifest who they really uh, really are, but they get more stuck in the blockers. So I think men are stuck in the blockers as well, but they are less ready and willing to step into that place of authenticity because of the vulnerability that's required. Women are better with the yeah, vulnerability, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but they, but they're going to have to move through those blockers in a, in a different way, you know? So I think, I, I think I find that it, that it impacts both genders equally once they get it. You both both genders respond equally. How does it show up in leaders? I'm just thinking about the audience, CEOs, 
what is there are there some leadership advice you have for sort of leading with swagger? Yes, yes, I have all the leadership advice for <laughs> swagger. So here here's the thing is that we all know, you know, again, leaders were not born leaders. They became leaders. They grew to be leaders. And if their primary focus was not on people and their people, then they don't deserve to be leaders, in my humble opinion. If they're only fixated on the growth of the organization, or if they're only, you know, fixated on the bottom line, or if they're only figured out, you know, on, the, on, on targets, and that they should not be leaders. Leaders have to be focused on people first, because it is the people who are going to ultimately help them to achieve their the results that they want. And as we all know, anybody who came up in any way or who's ever experienced, you know, a boss or, or a leader, we all know that the leaders that we respected and gravitated to and admired and even loved were the ones who what you saw was what you got. And you could go to them and have a frank discussion. You didn't feel judged by them. You you knew that they had your best interest at heart. They were plain speaking. They were authentic. They were accessible. All of those great things. It wasn't the stony faced asshole who never had time for you. Who you know who ignored you. Who you know delegated without even you know a question. That was not the leader that you dreamed of becoming. And yet, so many leaders, when they become leaders, forget that that uh, you know who it was that they loved and admired, and they lose they lose connection with it. They lose their swagger. So, for leaders, it's so incredibly important to model what you want your followers to see and to um, and to exhibit amongst their peers, because that's how you change culture. As a leader, you should have little or less to to little uh, tolerance for inauthenticity, for infighting, for judgment, for lack of psychological safety. You should have no time for that. Because here's the the little thing that, that leaders forget is that if your people are not bringing their authentic selves to the table, that means that an essential percentage of who they are is getting left behind. They're leaving it at home. They're not bringing it to work. So let's say I'm paying for 100% of an employee and I'm actually only getting 60% of that person because 40% does not feel safe to come out and play. They don't want to share their ideas. They don't want to take risks. They don't want to push the envelope. They don't want to step into new roles, all of that stuff because they don't feel safe and they don't feel seen. That's a really bad business model. Because you're paying for 100% and you're only getting 60. But if you can create an environment of psychological safety, the rest of those parts, and I think they're the best and the juiciest parts, the most unique parts, the, the greatest differentiating parts, those parts will start to come out and play. And then you're truly unleashing the potential in your people. And that is smart money. I've always struggled with organizations that can't see the value in being you know, a great place to work. And only having managers who are A, players at managing people in management roles, it just never makes sense. It's like we're mediocre and we're happy to be mediocre. But you know how that happens, right? You know how it happens. It ha- I mean, it's that, first of all, we promote people based on their accomplishments, not on their people skills. So did you reach the targets? Do you have a particular kind of skill set that we think is valuable? We're going to promote you. And now we're going to give you people to manage. But, but listen, 
What we really care about is your skill set and your ability to reach your targets. So these people are kind of an afterthought. We're not going to help you. We're not going to train you. We're not going to support you in that. But you better get it right because we, we cannot afford to have people quit. Then there's the organizations who think that they got it going on because they do these bullshit surveys that are not anonymous and that ask all the wrong, wrong questions. And people go, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Oh, I love it here. This is the best place ever. Please don't fire me. Oh my God, yes, no, I love you. This is amazing. Um, because people don't feel safe to speak their truth um, because they don't believe anything is going to change. So th- it, is a, it is an endemic situation that happens for so many reasons. And it's also it can also be because of the stress and the burden that is put on leaders and where their leaders are telling them to focus. That, uh, I think what you just described there is that sort of the learned help, learned helplessness. And so swagger is the antidote to that sort of learned helplessness. All of those things you talked about, all of those things that are holding you back, that's, that's, that's what that is, isn't it? It's like, you know, for whatever reason, whoever you are, there's some things that you think are true that aren't true. Yeah. And, and the, the, the first step is, is self-awareness. So for leaders have to hold a mirror up to themselves and say, eh, am I really doing what my people want and need me to do? Am I unleashing their potential? Am I supporting them? I mean, there should be no greater pride for a leader when someone that they brought up in the organization becomes their peer or goes above them. That is what success is for a leader. It's like, I grew this person up right. I did it right. This is amazing. You know, and and no, it's like everyone's so self-focused and, and, and so self-absorbed that they don't they don't get that that joy and that satisfaction from seeing the growth of the humans in their their organization, and and it's because of the pressures that are that are put on them by those those organizations. There's a lot of a lot of problems, but I think self-awareness comes first, and you need to check yourself. So for any any leader out there. If you know that you're not actively, and I'm not meaning accidentally or just byproduct, if you're not actively creating and reinforcing a culture of psychological safety, where your people feel like they can speak their truth, where they are encouraged to speak their truth, where they're encouraged and respected for taking risks, whether where their ideas, even wild and crazy ones, are given considerable thought and respect and that who they are as human beings, the trials, tribulations, challenges, and triumphs of their humanity is not being recognized and celebrated. You are not doing your job right. Mic drop. Sorry. I just went <laughs> 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 a little rant. My little rant. You're, leaving money, you're leaving money on the table. Well, you yes, know? that's you, the thing. Is that's like, and, that's, and that's you, the secret. And, and, and the thing is people will leave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you won't, and you won't attract, you won't attract the best people because the best people can sniff it out. Like the the people, the, the people who make a real difference in your organization are not unemployed. Yeah, that's right. right? I would and, say, I would say, probably the biggest challenge facing the clients I work with at the minute is recruitment. That's right. Because and boy, recruitment is so much more expensive. Acquisition is so much more expensive than retention. Dum dums. You know, it's so much. It's so much easier to figure out how to keep an employee than it is to have to hire a new one. And if you have never asked your team, what matters to you? What is important for you? Not at work, but in your life, in the spectrum of your life. What's important to you? What do you value? Do you, you know, I, you know, it, 
throwing money at you may not be the thing. You may want more time with your family. It may be that you don't feel heard or respected or seen. And if, if just for that, you don't have to pay them anything different. They, you just have to acknowledge the, their contribution. Because the, there's a great book um, by a woman named Teresa Amabile who runs the Harvard Business School. And uh, she wrote a book called, well, actually, I'm going to quiz you before I give you the name of this. Dom, here's your quiz. In massive research done across all sectors, all segments, all levels of organizations, what do you think was the one factor that defined people's happiness and engagement or lack of happiness and disengagement at work? It was one specific thing. What do you think it might be? Do, 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 Their relationship with their manager. Nope. Nope. The length of their commute. No. Bad answer. Eh, bad, no. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. <laughs> uh, you, you want to go further? Somebody said, somebody said thank you. No, not even that. Okay. It was whether they were able to experience a sense of progress or not. Big uh-huh. aha there. Which, but that links back to like the Gallup Q12. I know what's expected of me without knowing what's expected. You can't get any progress. People not knowing the score. That's right. And for every individual, the way they measure progress is different. And so you got to figure out what represents progress to them. Because it's not the same for everyone. That is part of the key to being a great leader is to understand what represents progress to them and make sure that they are set up to experience that. That is what keeps people happy and engaged in their work. The book is called The Progress Principle. Great book. It's a great book. Okay. Fab. I, you know, I would do these podcasts only so that I end up with book recommendations. <laughs> that would be enough well, I got for more me. for you. I got more books for you. I'm going to give you more books. Like, uh, Leslie, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, it depends how far back we go, I think. You know, lots of stuff you could have known earlier. Yeah, I know lots of stuff I couldn't know. Don't we all? Don't we all? I think I wish I would have found this particular purpose sooner. I wish I, because I feel like I'm running out of time. You know, I feel like I'm now in legacy work. It's the, that's called the latter part of your career, legacy work, you know, where you only have a set period of time to do this, this good work fueled by all of the wisdom that you've gained over all of these years. You know what I mean? You're like rushing. You're like, please, I want to get it out there into the world. So I wish that I, that, that maybe I hadn't, you know, been a singer for quite as long. Maybe I hadn't been a TV for quite as long. I wouldn't have given up. I wouldn't have changed it. But I, I kind of wish that I could have taken the exact path that I was on now and just moved it up, you know, like seven or eight years. That would have been, that would have been, but I probably wouldn't have had the ahas that I had when I had them if I were, if I'd been younger. So I try not to have a hate on for, for my, my history. Cause like regrets are so useless. Like I've had a pretty cool, I've had a pretty cool existence. So I think I just wish that I had understood maybe this more specific purpose earlier because I could have gotten on it earlier. Yeah. More, more legacy stuff on you yeah. rather than CV stuff. Yeah. Eulogy, eulogy work, not CV work. You got it, baby. You got it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, progress principle, who's that by? Uh, Teresa Amabile, M-A-A-L-I-B-E, I think. Okay. Yeah. I got two more for you. I got two more for you. Yeah. One is called Black Sheep by a gentleman named Brant Menzoir. 
This book is a life changer. Uh, It is all about understanding, really digging deeply, identifying and understanding the values that drive you as an individual and how those things will will help you to thrive if you can align them to the work or to the organization th- that that you're with. It, it, it reduces all of those big questions down to like, what do I really freaking care about? What do I really care about? And only when I understand what I really care about, can I start to find those points of connection that are going to keep me super engaged, super committed, and to find my place of purpose. And again, it's not fluffy wuffy. It's hardcore. It's real. It's fantastic. Everybody has to read this book, Black Sheep. And the other one is for a whole different kind of kind of world. A gentleman named Jeffrey Shaw has a book coming out actually May fourth. So the, this book, that book, will be out by now. It's called The Self Employed Life. And it is for all of those people, either they came from the corporate world, they were never in the corporate world, or they're considering jumping ship and starting their own thing. This will be their Bible. This is how to do it right, to stay real in the process, to understand how how to build your personal brand, the brand of your business, how to communicate with customers, how to live a fulfilled life as a self-employed human, how to deal with the fear of it. It is so fantastic. And I was just like, post-it note, post-it note, post-it note, post-it note, post-it note. He's just, he's, he's just uh, again, he's one of those guys who is who is in his place of purpose and all of it is in this book. So if you, if that you know, if that sounds like you or someone you know, this, you got to get this book. But it's you're, fantastic. You're, you're, are you, is this book for you? Are you, do you feel like you're living a self-employed yeah, life? Yeah, totally self-employed. I'm an entrepreneur. That's anyone who is self-employed. If you're an entrepreneur, you're responsible for revenue. You are self-employed. Who, who signs my check? Me. Thus, I am self-employed. Right? <laughs> and that applies to anybody. It doesn't matter big or small. I am fully self-employed. That's, Leslie, that's magic. If people would do one thing tomorrow, what's the one thing you think people should do tomorrow or now? Depends when they're listening. Um, am I allowed to say buy my book? Because it's all in my book. <laughs> they should like, definitely like, buy shameless, Swagger. <laughs> shameless they self-emotion. Buy, they, should, they should definitely, definitely buy, buy Swagger. Swagger. Well, I mean, and I say that, I say that with, with, with actually with, it's, you know, it's not funny because the book's going to help you do it. Like the book's going to help you do it. I think though that the first thing is to know that you already have it in you. Your swagger is not something external to you. It is it's something that you already have and it will manifest differently in every different human being. There is not one prescribed way to have swagger, to show up with swagger. You can be quiet. You can be an introvert. You can be introspective. You can be loud. You can be showy. You can be something in between. You could be anything. And your swagger will be unique to you. And nobody gets to judge that. That is off the table because it is who you are and you deserve to be seen in all of your glory. Your swagger is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? Leslie, thanks very much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This was a good one. This one's for (laughs) the books. For the books, as they say. Thank you so much, Dom, for letting Swagger have a platform. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.